The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning, everybody. I wish you could get this up a little bit, but never mind. So last Tuesday, um, on the day that these lovely twins were born, actually, February the 22nd, we marked the second National Human Trafficking Awareness Day in Canada. Human trafficking is a form of modern-day slavery, and no country in the world is exempt from it, including Canada. Indigenous women and girls are among the most targeted and overrepresented groups of trafficked individuals. And youth and young adults are the most at risk of being trafficked. 89% of victims are below the age of 35. The worldwide human trafficking is estimated to affect around 21 million people. We've got, we've got our second slide. Um, we can see in the Gospels, Jesus told a wonderful parable of the lost sheep. And the shepherd, he um, leaves his 99 sheep, doesn't he, to look for that one who was lost. And he says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And as Christians and children of God, we all carry that burden for the lost. And in my work at IGM, Um, I have the privilege of seeing story after story of people being rescued from slavery and human trafficking. And of course, rescue is just the start of that person's journey to freedom. If we look at the third slide, earlier this month, IGM worked with local police in Ghana to rescue a 10-year-old boy who had been trafficked to fish on Lake Volta. The boy had never gone to school and was sold by his parents in April to a man who agreed to pay just over $90 for his labor. The rescue team reported that the boy had worked all his life and he didn't even know how to color what that meant. So what what can we do in the face of such tragedy to respond to this challenge of human trafficking around the world, but also around us here in Canada? Well, at White Ridge Baptist Church, uh, we are already doing something Because last May, and we look at our next slide, I think, there we go, Joy Smith, um, she's a Canadian human trafficking activist and a former conservative MP. And she ran an online seminar with us looking at human trafficking in Canada and over 40 households from the church tuned into that event. And during the evening, um, we split into groups and out of the group work that we did together, we came up with some kind of recommendations and some of them were things like what are the early warning signs of trafficking how can we better be connected to our young people and how can our young people be better connected to us and how can we best share good practice to minimize trafficking from actually occurring in the first place well we have the next step which is the next slide and we will take this on Sunday March the 27th here at church from 3 p.m. And we will explore, in person, the idea of how to build healthy relationships. While human trafficking may seem far away from our own experience, often the thing that can make us vulnerable to any kind of abuse, which might lead in extreme cases to trafficking, is born out of unhealthy relationships. So this will be a workshop. We will be sharing ideas together. We'll be doing practical activities together and even having fun through those activities. The aim 
is to help one another understand how to build healthy relationships, and everyone is welcome. You'll be able to see register for that on our social media, on the app, and also on our website, so look out for that. So just going back to our story, the lost sheep, I want to leave you with the reintegration of another boy, uh, Mauli, and he was rescued by AGM and local police in April 2019 from enslavement in the same fishing industry on Lake Volta. And this is the moment that he was reunited with his mum. And as you watch this, just think about how much more we will be re reunited with our Heavenly Father when he welcomes us. So let's just watch this short video. Check out the app. It'll be on the app. We'll put the video on the app, okay? Because it is wonderful. It's about 10 seconds long, but it is wonderful. Seeing the joy of the mum. And she carries the son, actually. She picks him up. So it's just a wonderful picture. So no worries. Um, let's just pray um, together now for, the, for human trafficking. Um, and then we're going to just say a short prayer as well for what's happening in Ukraine. So let's bow our heads. Dear Lord, you demand justice for your children who have been wronged. Give strength to people who investigate and prosecute traffickers. Encourage them when they are weary. Give courage to survivors when they are asked to testify against their former captors. And through your great love, bring in a conviction and repentance even to those who perpetrate these acts. Lord, let your justice prevail. And in the light of what's happening in Ukraine, and I know there are, there are people here in this congregation who have family and connections to Ukraine and that part of the world, let's just lift up Ukraine now in prayer. O Lord Jesus, servant and master, bringer of peace and reconciliation, with deep sorrow and concern, we cry out to you for this conflict now occurring in Ukraine. We long for you to arrest this violence and destruction, to bring this conflict to a just end, and for your protection for all innocent victims and everyone directly involved in this military action. Lord, in your mercy, hear this prayer. Amen. I'll be reading from Matthew 5, verse 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Romans 12, verse 19, yeah, 19 to 21. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You may be seated. It was almost, uh, it was almost two years ago that uh, I took the picture on the left. It's a picture of uh, City Place Food Court, and I shared that here in one of, one of the Sundays. It was probably right around the time when the restrictions had gone in. And at that time, we thought that the pandemic restrictions would end in three weeks, maybe six weeks, and so on, and here we are two years later. And since then, we've had a couple of incredibly challenging years. As a church, we've prayed for people, we've prayed for community, and we've prayed for our governments in all of that time. But one group that I think, as part of this church family, has kind of gone largely unnoticed has been our leadership, our own leadership. And that's our board and our staff who provided leadership in circumstances that no one had prepared them for. They didn't go to Bible college and take a course in pandemic church service arrangements. They didn't go to military, as in Dave's case, and maybe you worked on some disaster recovery, (laughs) (laughs) which is what this was all about. They, they were flexible to accommodate changing health orders almost sometimes on a weekly basis. And in all of that, their intent was that we as a church community will be able to continue to worship and continue to be fed what was most important that, at that time, the Word of God and the teaching and the fellowship and so on. Balancing the needs of the church family, that's what they were trying to do. Striking a compromise while addressing competing points of view as well. And that is some tough stuff. You know, whether, whether you agreed with their decisions and affirmed them or you disagreed with their decisions and told them what you thought of their decisions, I think we can all agree on one thing, that in all of this time, they have done a remarkable job of responding to changing health orders by the government while they've attempted to address the needs and the competing and differing viewpoints of people in this room. And all, all the while, all the while, they've made sure that they were humble before God and were following in His leading and His complete obedience. So before we get into the message, I thought we'll just ask a rep from the board, Dave's here for that, and, and somebody from the staff to be on here, and we're going to pray for our, our leadership. We're going to thank God for them, we're going to pray for their well-being this morning, and we're going to commit to them. And whether you agree with what they, the decisions they make or not, uh, they're our leadership, and we sit under their leadership. And we can let them know when we, when we like their decisions and affirm them. We can let them know when, they, when we don't like their decision. But at the end of the day, we sit under their leadership, and they're there because God has placed them there. So if you will stand with me, we'll we'll just raise them up before God this morning. Our Heavenly Father, it is good to be together as a church family, to be able to sing to you, to pray, and to hear your word this morning. 
And it is indeed a joy to be present here with our brothers and sisters. This morning, God, we want to give you thanks for the men and women who have the responsibility for leading this church family. Our board, our staff, Lord, you have placed each one of them with their unique gifts and talents to serve you and to lead us. Father, they've had one challenging time through these last two years as they have made every effort to ensure that we may be able to continue to meet to worship you, to act honorably in response to the health orders issued by our governments, and to respectfully receive the differing opinions that exist within this body of believers, and most of all, Lord, to honor you in all their decision-making. Father, I pray that you will bless each and every one of them, that this pandemic and everything that came with it will not rob them of their joy that comes from serving you, And Lord, would you please place your peace and joy in their hearts and minds. Father God, I pray that you would lead us, your people, to live a life that honors you, a life that places the interests of our brothers and sisters above ours, and to support, encourage, and affirm the men and women you have chosen to lead us. We pray for these, Lord, in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Well, we're in uh, Romans, and just in case uh, you're tuning in or you've never been to our church before, you're probably looking at me and wondering, well, that guy doesn't look like a Sheila Taylor or a Kathy Cornelson, and he definitely does not look like a Wall or a Claussen or a Friesen or a Jank, and you would be correct. I am neither one of those because I'm not part of the church staff, but I am part of this church family. And once in a while, it is my privilege and my, my honor to bring uh, the word this more, uh, to, to our church service, such as this one today. If you've been part of our church family, well, maybe I'll tell you what my name is so you don't go try to guess it. My name is Azar Lalden, and like I said, we've been part of this church family for many, many years. Um, and like I said, sometimes I have the privilege of bringing the word in our Sunday morning services. Now, if you've been part of our church family for the last little while, you would uh, know that we're in the book of Romans. We're doing an expository study of Paul's letter that he wrote to the church at Rome. Since the beginning of this year, we've been in chapter 12 of this letter. So a quick summary, just, just to catch everyone up. The first eight chapters, Paul takes the time to explain what the fundamentals and foundations of Christian faith are. He talks about the fact that every human being is sinful in the eyes of God. He talks about justification by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he talks about freedom from sin and victory in Christ. And then as we move on into the next three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, Paul explains the sovereignty of God over salvation. He spells out how an individual can enter into a relationship with God, a righteous relationship with God. In chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, he says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So when you place your faith and your trust only in the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross, and you make him the master of your life, and trust that he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death that day, his promise is that you will be saved. And then in the last four chapters, or the last five chapters, 12 through 16, 
Paul gives instructions for all Christians on how to live a holy life, how to live a lifestyle that honors God. And he starts chapter 12 with, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as a holy sacrifice. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be renewed through transformation that comes from the Holy Spirit. Paul was writing these letters to churches that were struggling with believers who were conforming to the world, not to God. And I think it is precisely for this reason that this letter is absolutely relevant for churches today. So after Paul lays a firm foundation for the Christian faith in the first 11 chapters, he goes on to tell us how those foundational truths translate and manifest themselves in the life of a believer. If we believe what we've read in the first 11 chapters, then we are compelled to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. We are compelled to not conform to the world, but be transformed. We undergo a metamorphosis, an inward transformation that results in an outward change. It is not conformity, it is transformation. And then within the chapter, Paul continues with the themes of living in humility, using our gifts to serve others, of demonstrating love for one another, living a life of spiritual zeal, and, and so on. But chapter 12 is this transitional chapter, and today we conclude this chapter by looking at the last three verses, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These verses actually continue a thought that we read in verse 14 and verse 17 earlier in the chapter. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Or in verse 17, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. As you can imagine, these words would be especially difficult for the church in Rome. Christians would have been a marginalized group at that time, a fringe group. They would have been ostracized by the Jewish people, and they would have been viewed upon by the Romans as a, a fringe movement, a political or, or religious movement that needed to be crushed. Persecution against Christians would have been on the rise at this point when Paul wrote this letter in, in AD 55, 58. And it would be shortly after this, in AD 64, that the emperor Nero would actually go ahead and start this massive movement of persecution against the Christians. So for Christians in that era, and honestly in every era since then, these words, there's been far too many opportunities for Christians to put into practice these words that Paul wrote. To bless those who curse them, to not repay evil for evil, to do good, to not take revenge, to be over, not be overcome by evil, and so on. Now before we, I guess before we get into the actual study of the text, let me just point out some things that this text is not teaching. It is not teaching that Christians are to be doormats that anyone can walk over. It is not teaching that Christians are not to stand up for their faith and for our Lord. It is not teaching that if a Christian is in an abusive relationship or circumstance, 
at work, at home, even at a church, that they are not to stand up against it. And it is not teaching that Christians should not seek justice within the society in which they live. In fact, seeking justice and standing up against evil are the very hallmarks of Christian character which organizations like Joy Smith Foundation and, and IJM, for instance, base themselves on and do the work that they do. So that's what the passage is not teaching. And now that that's behind us, we can look at what it is teaching. Let's take a look at our, our main passage then. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. The instruction that God's word gives us is that we are not, not to take revenge. We are never to take revenge. But leave the judicial righteousness of God. Those are the words in the Amplified Version. Leave it to God's judicial righteousness. The instruction is entirely counter to the way the world views justice and revenge. Our news media, our books, our movies, and so on, by a vast majority, glorify the concept of revenge. We must have revenge. We must give as good as we get. Our collective, communal thought process is becoming more and more revenge-focused than justice-focused. In a world of tweets and hashtags and sound bites, the idea of revenge is flourishing. Whenever there's a court case that gets some public, public exposure, each one of us becomes judge, jury, and executioner. We pass judgment on what the criminal's punishment should be. And if the judge decides something against that, that is not consistent with our thought process, we are outraged against the judge as well. We must have revenge. Now, if, just a quick trivia. What's the biggest movie in the last couple of years? Avengers Endgame. How many of you went and watched that movie? You can confess it. <laughs> Those of you who didn't raise your hands, we know you're not telling the truth. But what happens in that movie? Thanos wipes out half the universe or half the life in universe. At the end of the movie, if you haven't watched the movie, it's spoilers, but you know, it's four years since the movie was out. So what does Tony Stark do? He's got his glove, he has the infinity stones on it, and he goes up to Thanos and he snaps his finger and he kills him. And every one of us in the theater cheered for that moment. Right? And the movie became a blockbuster because the Avengers had avenged. Now, just take a little bit of this. Just suppose that Tony Stark became a Christian and walked up to Thanos and said, hey, I've got your stones here, and dude, you're a really bad guy. I'm not going to give you these, but hey, let's be friends. I think the movie would have completely bombed because no one wants to see no avenging, no revenge. That's our mindset. And unfortunately, Christians within the church are conforming to the world's ideas and world's patterns. Someone must pay the price for the wrong that is done to us. But the Word of God teaches us something completely opposite to that. Never take revenge. That's the expectation that God has set for all of his children. That's the standard that he's established for those who call him father. And when we choose, when we choose not to take revenge, 
we demonstrate the transformation that is happening within us. And it's actually happening continually within us. We demonstrate that we're not people who have been conformed to the world. We are not people who live by the flesh. We are spirit-filled people who follow a different God. Choosing not to take revenge might be taken and viewed as, as a weakness, but I would propose to you that it takes a whole lot more strength and courage when your enemy is vulnerable and you do not take revenge. So why do we leave room for God's wrath? Because, quite simply, He is God, and we are not. You and I don't have the moral authority or the judicial righteousness within us to pass punishment or judgment on another human being. We do not have the perfect, unbiased judgment that is needed for a fair punishment for someone's evil, evil doing. God is the only one who is perfect, who has the absolute moral authority and absolute judgment to pronounce punishment for a person's evil actions. But when we retaliate, when we take revenge, what we're doing, in fact, is that we are taking away God's authority and saying, we know better. We know what the right punishment is for this act. So by leaving room for God's judicial righteousness, we leave it to the only one who can pronounce judgment on a person for what they've done. Now, in, I've noticed that in the Western churches, in, in the Western society, we almost always think that God's vengeance always leads an offender to a point of repentance. And that's obviously the ultimate goal. Someone who has offended you, someone who has wronged you, they come to a no, into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate vengeance. But I want to tell you that God still, even today, will avenge his people. He will take vengeance. And I'll share with you a very, very quick story. It happened back in Pakistan when I was growing up a very long time ago. I wasn't even a teen at that time, so you can imagine it was a very long time ago. But I grew up in a fairly large, large city, but just outside the city were smaller villages. And this, is, this happened in one of those smaller villages. It had a train track running through it. And on one side of the tracks was the Christian side of, of the population of the villagers. And they were the poor. They were the ones who worked on the land, went out and tilled the, the land and worked for, for all the affluent non-Christian community which was on the other side of the tracks. The Christian side was very poor, mud-thatched homes, single-room homes with a curtain hanging in the front instead of a door, but the other side was affluent. And during this time, a young girl from the Christian side of the village was, was kidnapped. And a few days later, her bruised and abused and dead body was, was found. There was plenty of evidence of who had done, done this deed. Lots of evidence to implicate a number of men from the other side of the tracks. The court went, the court took the cases in. Churches were praying that there will be justice. And then the day came when the justice, when the decision was supposed to be announced and all men were acquitted. 
because they had influence, they had power, they had the right religion, they had money, and they were free. The next days, newspaper carried a very small story about this court case. And in that story, the father of this young girl said, we were hoping that the courts will grant us justice, but that did not happen. And these were his words, but I believe that my God will avenge the disgrace and death of my daughter. The reason this story is so vividly in my mind is because my mom was completely distraught about this whole, whole incident. And I think it's partly because she was a very kind and gentle person as it was, but also because I had two sisters who were the same age as this young girl that had been murdered. So she was very distraught. And one time, one of my uncles, her brothers, who was an Anglican minister, came to see her and he said, Pramila, why, what's going on? And she was distraught and she said, what is happening? Why didn't the court, courts give justice? And he just put her arm around her and said, Pramila, God will avenge. And that was it. But weeks passed and nothing happened and life seemed to carry on and even the church started to forget what had happened. And then one day, one day, there was a funnel cloud that formed outside the village. Now this is a region where funnel clouds do not happen. But a funnel cloud happened and it literally walked through the village along the train tracks and completely devastated the affluent side of the village. Everything on the Christian side, the poor side, remained completely intact. Not a single house was touched, but everything on the other side was completely devastated. So God's vengeance is real. If you've been wronged by someone, God will avenge. So then the next question comes, if I am never to avenge myself and leave the vengeance to the Lord, then what am I to do? Shelly, am I going in the back, uh, in the reverse direction here? Okay, here we go. What are we to do? Thankfully, the word of the Lord has some pretty clear answers to our, our questions. It tells us that we are in a battle against principalities of darkness. It tells us that we are in a constant fight Jesus has won the victory. He has won the battle. He is the ultimate victor. But when a believer defects from the enemy's armies and joins the banner of Jesus Christ, he immediately or she immediately puts a big target on their chest. All, all the forces of hell are coming after you. We are still in this body. We're still living in this fallen world. We're still in a state of battle. The attacks of the enemy are relentless, and they will come after you. So verse 21 presents two options. Do not be overcome by evil or overcome evil with good. That almost makes you think that it is possible for a believer to be overcome by evil. But if that's your mindset and that's what your thought process is, that's pretty depressing. 
Because the word of God actually goes on to tell us in John's gospel, or actually in John's letter, sorry, Shelly, maybe you should do this. I'm, I'm kind of messing it up here. <laughs> We're going to go to 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. It says, For everyone born, born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has over, overcome the vir- world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If that's you, if you have believed that Jesus is the Son of God, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have accepted his sacrifice and his resurrection as your penalty for your sin and accepted the life that he's given you, then you are a victor. You are a conqueror in Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that the gates of hell can come against you. There is nothing that the evil, the enemy can give, can bring against you. You are a conqueror. So then, what are we to do? If we are not to be overcome by evil, then we must overcome evil with good. So we're going to explore answers to three questions here quickly. First of all, what is the foundation for conquering evil with good? How do we conquer evil with good? And then why are we commanded to do that? Well, the first question, the foundation of conquering evil with good, well, before we get there, maybe, maybe just a quick clarification. The evil that, that's being talked about here, you know, typically when we, word, uh, we hear the word evil, we think about the big bad things that happen. We think of genocides, and we think of people like Hitler and Mussolini and everything. But in all truth, anything that is not consistent with the will of God is evil. Anything that's leveled at you to bring down your worth that God has placed on you is evil. And most of the time, if not all of the time, this type of evil comes from people around you. It could be, it could be a bully on a playground, it could be your boss who berates you at your work. It could be a coworker who makes fun of you. It could be a spouse who's cheated or walked out on you. Or it could be someone who's broken your trust. It could be a leader in your church who's legalistic and somehow stops you from enjoying the joy and, and, and freedom that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. All of those things are evil. So how do we overcome this? What are the foundational blocks that we need to address these evils that come against us. Well, first of these is love, and it's not just any love, it's agape love. It's the unselfish love that God has. It is the love that is completely selfless, that elevates the interests of someone else above their own. It wants the higher good, the best for a different person. And without this type of love, it is impossible to love our enemies. It is impossible to love those who are evil to us or who are doing wrong against us. And we, the believers, are the recipients of God's such love, his agape love. And that makes us ideally suited to extend that love to those who hate us, who carry out evil against us. We as believers come to this awakening, this realization 
that we are no longer objects of God's wrath. We are his children. And then this amazing fact propels us to take that love and send it out to others, to love others who hate us. And as we grow in our faith, uh, we develop a deeper understanding of what this love is. And as that understanding grows, so does our humility, so does our compassion for others, so does our perspective on the value and the worth of every human being, even the ones who are evil to us, who, are wrong, who have wronged us. You know, the first... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter speaks of this love extensively. It is the agape love that, that, the, that the author writes about. This kind of love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It, does not, it, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. And then the chapter ends with this one verse. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Agape love. God's love. Without which it is impossible for us to love our enemies. The second foundational block is a transformed life. When we receive our salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells us and begins this process of regenerating us, sanctifying us, changing us from the inside out. God, the Holy Spirit, uses God's word and God's people to renew our minds. And his work in, in our life starts to break the bondage of, of conformity to the world and starts the work of transformation. The renewal of our minds starts to align our thoughts with God's, starts to align our priorities with God's. Our preferences, our choices, our decisions, our conversations, our thought process, everything starts to honor God. As the Holy Spirit transforms us, it becomes easier to say no to the things of this world. Before we choose a TV show to watch, or a book to read, or a magazine to browse through, or a, a music album, or a podcast to listen to, we discern whether it is honorable, whether it is just, whether it is pure, or lovely, or commendable, because Philippians 4.8 tells us if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So this inward transformation, which is an act of the Holy Spirit, its results show up on the outside. And one of those results is how we view other people and how we love other people. So with this transformation and with this growing presence of agape love, you have the two founding blocks of a life, life where you can love others, even those who do evil against you. So now that these two blocks are in place, what's the next step? Well, there are two things we can do, and one of those is doing good deeds. We can do good deeds to those who do evil deeds to us. We've already established that we cannot retaliate, we will not take revenge, we will not hit back against someone who's wronged us. So we resolve to respond with good deeds. 
We've already been taught in the scripture, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him, food, give him water to drink. Take care of the needs of your enemies. Those who hurt you, comfort them when they're hurting. That's what Jesus wants us to do. Doing good deeds when they're least expected and when they're not expected at all. When your enemy curses you, bless them. When your enemies persecute you, pray for them. You know, there's an interesting relationship in the Old Testament between David, he wasn't king yet, between David and King Saul. Saul wanted to to take out David completely, and he would go on these campaigns to hunt down David so he could uh, could take take him out, essentially. But he failed repeatedly because God's anointing was on David at that time. Now, in one of these campaigns, King Saul entered a cave to rest. Now, what happened was that David, with his fighting men, was also hiding in the same cave. And David's advisors said to him, look, there's the man who's standing between you and the throne. And God has already ordained you and anointed you to be the king. Maybe God's given him into your hands now to take him out. And David chose not to take revenge. David chose not to raise his sword against King Saul. Despite all the advice he was getting, he chose to follow God, not take revenge, not return evil deeds for evil deeds, but with good deeds. And so the principle we are taught here is to do good, to respond with good, even to those who have dealt with us in an evil manner. And then we overcome evil with good news. You see, at the root of everything evil that happens around us, every evil action that is taken against you, there is a person who needs redemption at its very core. It is a person who is afflicted with the same disease, the same ailment that you and I were afflicted with. Sin. Everything that they're doing, the way they're acting, the things that they're doing, they're doing because they are indwelt by sin. That's what shapes them. That's what shapes their actions. And given their current state, their only destination is an eternal separation from God in the fires of hell. And just, before, just, just so we don't become smug, that was my destination as well. And that was your destination as well. Until... Jesus redeemed you. And because he redeemed me and he redeemed you, he can redeem the person who's carrying out evil against you as well. That is their greatest need. The only way to overcome this evil and sin that is within us is for them to know the Savior who died for them. And how do they know the Savior? When we share the good news with them. The only difference between you and the bully on the playground, between you and your manager who berates you, or any of the other situations we talked about, the only difference between you and that other person is that you have submitted your life to Christ and his Holy Spirit lives within you. And if that weren't the case, we will be on the same level playing field as every other sinner and as every other unbeliever. So good news and good deeds flow out from us because on the inside, we have the agape love of God 
and a Holy Spirit that leads our transformation. And then there is one last question left. Why? Why are we commanded to conquer evil with good? Well, Jesus, Jesus taught it. That's the simplest answer. Our Lord, our Savior, especially in Sermon on the Mount, taught us to pray for those who persecute us, to love those who hate us, to give food to our enemy when he is hungry, to give water to our enemy when they're thirsty. That is what Jesus has taught us. Matt read the, the portion of Sermon on the Mount, which is very, very clear on how we are to live, how we are to respond to those around us. And in these words, Jesus very clearly tells his disciples that they are to live a different life than the way the world expects them to live. They are to live, they are to have responses that are diametrically opposed from the way the world would respond and the flesh would respond. So when we begin to follow Christ, there is a change that happens in our mindset, a resetting almost of how we live. 180 degree turning away from sin and the world and turning toward God. This is the teaching that Jesus has for his followers. Love those who hate you. The life of a follower of Christ is, is not meant to be easy. We are called to live lives that honor God in all interactions. And in all of Jesus' teachings, what we notice is that he continues to raise the bar for those who follow him. In the Old Testament, the law was given and the law said, this is what's called adultery, don't do it. And Jesus came along and said, well, this is what the Old Testament said, but I'll tell you that if you look at someone with lust, that is adultery, not the actual act in itself, it, it, just that. And how about murder? The Old Testament said, if you take someone's life, that's murder, you'll be punished for that. And Jesus said, that was the old standard. The new standard for my followers is that if you are angry with someone, that's considered murder. Jesus continues to raise this bar for his followers because he wants us to live a counter-culture life, a counter-worldview life. He wants us to be different. He wants us to be holy. Now, Jesus didn't just say those words. He actually lived those words. Because the one we follow died for his enemies. His love for those who hated him was so great that he laid down his life for them as well. So the second reason why we are to conquer evil with good is because Jesus demonstrated it. He showed it. He did not repay evil with evil. Of all the people, of all the people who've ever walked on this planet, he was the only one who would be fully justified to pass judgment on a sinner. The only one. But he did not do that. You know, even the, even the disciples who were spending so much time with him, even they did not get this new standard that Jesus was setting. I don't know if you remember the story, but in Luke, uh, Jesus sent a bunch of his disciples into a Samaritan village and the purpose was for them to come up and do, do some prep work and so on and so forth. But the villagers threw them out. And John and James, John, the gospel writer, the, the apostle of love, and his brother, they're called sons of thunder. They come to Jesus and they say, 
Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy these people? I don't know if they were trying to score some points with Jesus or they were just drunk with power that they had or whatever the case was. That's not Jesus' way to deal with his enemies. And he tells them that. He rebukes James and John for their suggestion to destroy these people by calling down fire from heaven. And then, of course, Peter, the, the super, super apostle, you know, when Jesus is being captured in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter takes out his sword and he slashes the ear of one of high priest's servants. And what did Jesus do? Peter, put away your sword. Put away your sword. And then he heals the high priest's servant. And just in case we forget, Jesus could have responded with strength, with a show of force, if he wanted to. The Bible tells us that he could have called down 12 legions of angels if he wanted to, and he did not. A typical legion had 6,000 soldiers in it, and then had another 6,000 support soldiers. So Jesus could have called down 72,000 angels if he needed to. He didn't need Peter's puny sword to defend him. And I don't think these would have been the angels that, that work for Gabriel, you know, doing all the messaging and taking messages back and forth. I think these would have been the warrior angels who report to Michael. You know, the kick-butt type of angels, the warrior angels that are part of Lord's army. That's what these 12 legions would have been. And yet, Jesus did not do that. He demonstrated love for his enemies. He overcame evil by doing good. Our puny minds cannot even understand the battle, the pressure, the evil that was heaped upon Jesus in the spiritual realm. All we have are pictures of his physical torment and torture that we get in the Gospels. We do not even know what it means to have the sin of every human being since Adam and every human being till the end of time piled upon Jesus Christ. We have no idea. We can never comprehend that. And yet, he took it, and he died, and he rose again. He responded to evil with good, and he conquered evil in doing that. On Friday when he died, he took the penalty of sin for all of us. And the bondage of sin was broken. Sin had no hold on me and on you. And then when he rose on the third day, death was defeated. Both our enemies, sin and death, were conquered over. Jesus had overcome them. And you can see as, as the disciples' lives change, they demonstrate after they have met Jesus they demonstrate changed lives. Every single one of them was tortured. Every single one of them received lots of evil, and yet they chose to do good. You know, as we, as we wrap up the message, I'll ask the worship team to come up. But as we come to the end, I, I wonder if... if, if um, 
If some of you are thinking, you don't know, you don't know my life. You know, it's good for you to stand up on stage and tell me all these things, but you have no idea what I've gone through um, or I am going through. You do not see the, the scars that I have on my soul or the scars I have on my body. You do not know the fear that I live with. You do not know the shame that I bear. You do not know the one who has inflicted all this on me. You don't know how hard, even impossible, it is to forgive someone who's wronged me and carried out everything like this. And you would be right. I do not know. I do not know what you've gone through. I do not know your struggles. But I know someone who does. And if you're a believer, you know him too. He knows all that you've gone through. He sees the scars on your soul and on your body. He sees your fear and your shame. And he also knows the one who's done it all to you. So let me invite you to come to Christ with all of that. For you to experience freedom, you need to let Christ take your burdens. For you to be able to do good deeds, to let the agape love flow out of you, to let the transformation continue, to let you share the good news, you have to come to Christ and lay everything at his feet. All your hurt, all your pain, all your shame, everything. If you're already a believer, give him this part of your life as well. Let him heal you and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to truly live as a conqueror. The battle's already won. Overflow with his agape love. Experience his transformation in you so that you may be enabled to do good deeds and share the good news so that ultimately Christ may be glorified in you. Amen. Father, you have loved us with a perfect love, with an unconditional love, with an agape love. Thank you that that never ends, that that cannot be quenched. And I thank you for how you are allowing us the joy of learning how to love more and more like you love. We thank you that you are transforming us by your spirit. And we thank you how you invite us to Christ-likeness and how we can honor you by how we love one another. And we recognize that it is easy and immediately satisfying to be Christ-like towards people who are being good to us. But when there's tension, when there's jealousy, or when there's challenges, it's difficult to be vulnerable like that. And what Azra says is true. There's a courage that is not something we can manufacture that allows us to be as humble or as vulnerable as we need to be to love those who don't show love to us. But I pray that you would, you would build that in us, that you would give us a thirst for Christ-likeness, that you would give us a joy in serving and loving those uh, around us, and I pray that you would give us a desire for people to know you more and for you to be glorified more, more deeply even by those who are not showing love to us. Thank you, God, for how you can continue to shape us for your glory. Bless each one of us as we go from here. Thank you for meeting us here today, and we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.